Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out Toronto Today for July 28th on this particular Thursday. Interesting things in the city last night. We're going to talk a little bit about the Dua Lipa concert and the fireworks that were shot off during that show. Got word of that uh, driving in this morning. Didn't know about it when I went to bed last night, but a real thing. How do people get fireworks inside a concert venue where there's metal detectors? And what should happen at this point in time to make sure it doesn't happen again? That factors in as well. And we'll talk to Greg Gillooly, who wrote a book about being a sexual abuse survivor at Graham James's Hest. And we will talk about what we're seeing with Hockey Canada and the testimony in Ottawa. It's all coming up. Toronto Today begins now. Have you ever been to a show? This is a Dua Lipa you hear uh, underneath me. I would have gone to that show last night uh, were I not single parenting this week. And uh, driving my kid to uh, North York uh, for soccer. But had to be there, right? Family first, uh, kids first. But I uh, I wanted to go to that show, and it didn't end up transpiring. But maybe I would have been hit by a bottle rocket. We've all gone to shows with great pyrotechnics. We've all gone to great rock and roll shows with pyrotechnics involved. Here's the thing. You're not supposed to bring your own. The band and their crew have them ready for you. And they travel from venue to venue with said pyrotechnics. That didn't happen at Dua Lipa last night. It's the first time I can think of, and it's starting to get some international attention this morning. We're like, great. Because when Toronto gets international attention, sometimes we're like, um, this is a time when we'd rather you didn't talk about us. But yeah, Dua Lipa in Toronto last night had people at least one person setting off fireworks. Um, It's making the rounds on social media. Someone smuggled them in. I don't feel this was an inside job with uh, security personnel. Now there are injuries reported. Obviously, nine nine hours ago, who's to say that there were injuries? Um, Here's sound of the pyrotechnics happening at Dua Lipa's show at Scotiabank last night. And then the show rolls uh, right along. Again, wish I could have gone. But I'll tell you something that is, uh, and I won't call it an unintended consequence of this, but scary moment. Sounds like gunfire to me. Ever been somewhere inside and been concerned about gunfire when something goes off, but it ends up being not gunfire. But in that moment, pretty freaking frightening. And so that's a problem. And I think you got to find some answers as to how this transpired. I th- now, what we don't want, and this is so frustrating for people who go to games, concerts, wherever. I referenced Canada's Wonderland, ha- ha- like absolutely shaking everybody down. It takes forever to get in from 10 to 11. And I don't want to be that guy. I know there's that guys and that girls out there that it's it's the first world problem guy or girl. That's not me. I'm just pointing out that I think it's useless. I don't care about my own fate, but I see well, I do, but I but I see parents taking little kids in and four year olds have to empty out their pockets. What are we talking about here? They do. They do. At Canada's Wonderland, everybody gets screened the same way when they go. If I go see the killers at Scotiabank Arena, which I plan to do later in the fall, you're I know cell phone, wallet, keys. There you go into the little bin, walk through. I'm not I don't need to bring a backpack in, but I'm but I'm not going to Canada's Wonderland. Well, you got to bring everything in bathing suits, sunscreen, um, another change of clothes, other shoes. Maybe you've got flip flops for when you're in the water park and you got proper walking shoes, because if you've got knees like me, like Bobby Orr does, um, you, you can't walk around without your best shoes all day long. 
So the gun, the gun shots sounding like it, not great. I remember being on the air the morning after what happened to the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, England. And you might remember that that was the case, but that was a bomb going off and people thinking the noise is part of the show is a massive, massive problem. That happened on May 22nd, 2017. Manchester Arena was bombed during Ariana Grande's concert. A suicide bomber detonated an explosion on the premises. ISIS claimed responsibility. It's the deadliest a terror attack. It was the deadliest, deadliest terror attack since the 05 London Metro bombings. And uh, I remember being there later that summer. You still could feel it in the air. I've had those weird things where I was in London about a month after that. And I was in Denver about two weeks after Columbine. And anybody that's ever been somewhere, New York, right? In the couple months after 9-11 in 2001, just feel that thing in the air. It's in your mind, but then when you get there, it resonates and, and it's even more so. But you got young fans not thinking there's no need to panic. There's no violence. This is part of the show. And it wasn't. And it wasn't. Explosions, flashes of lights, they're part of concerts. So while maybe there was a, a random injury or two last night, I'm not dismissing um, the fear that people might have had at that particular show. I don't doubt that some people got pretty frantic about it. Dua Lipa also, um, and I don't know if I'd have been the oldest person there. I hope not. But if I was the if I was wasn't the oldest person there, you know who would have been there? Parents taking their teenagers, and they'd have been maybe a little more alarmed than their teenager. And when in your in a scenario where you've got your kid, every parent can have this resonate from uh, you know through their heart and their soul and and head to toe. You'll throw yourself in front of danger to protect your kid. You just will. That instinct comes the second that baby comes out of the womb. That instinct is there. And it doesn't even matter when they become adults. I think parents still feel that way about their kids. The goal is to preserve their life. And if you have to give up yours or your health or, or put yourself at risk, you do those things. And I don't know if it was that bad last night, but from the video I saw, it's on the floor. These things are going into the air. But not every not every firework is accurate. The mayhem that happened in the beaches at Woodbine Beach, uh, Victoria Day weekend on the Sunday night, not the Monday night, definitely showed when you're shooting fireworks off at people, cops were injured, residents were injured. Maybe even some of the perpetrators of shooting off the fireworks uh, were injured because that can happen. Like this is not a nothing story that this happened at a concert with 18,000 people last night. And there's probably hundreds of people, if not a couple thousand, that heard the noise, maybe saw the flashes and thought this is way worse than it turned out to be. And that's not great. Not one bit, not for our city and not for us as a society. I think the focus has really uh, shifted from uh, the Pope's visit because I think we're now seeing, and it's almost over, but we're seeing the same thing day after day. I'm not sure we could say that about what we've seen with Hockey Canada. Let me give you the testimony uh, yesterday that was really significant to me, and that's Anthony Housefather, Liberal MP, uh, speaking, uh, of course, with Scott Smith, Hockey Canada's CEO, making the case that they didn't handle things, never mind uh, the, the due process given to any side in this, but they didn't handle things right from a legal perspective. What legal right did you have, sir, to settle a claim on behalf of people's unknown or people that you did know that you did not consult with. If I am sued, I have a right to be involved in the question of whether or not there is a settlement paid and whether or not somebody settles on my behalf. Did you obtain written consent from the other defendants to settle on their behalf? Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. I advise the process that we undertook to settle. 
So you basically, did you, see, you, you didn't contact people even though you had their emails and you had their legal counsel's representation. You chose to settle without consulting with them. You then settled on their behalf. Okay, you had a claim and you settled it within three weeks or four weeks of the date you received the claim. That is highly unusual. So let me understand, you at the last committee hearing, you and Mr. Rennie professed that you did not even know which eight individuals were involved. You said that there were some statements in the claim made by the plaintiff that were false and others that you couldn't validate because she was never interviewed by Heenan Hutchinson and never interviewed by your counsel and she made no statement to the police. Why did you not use the lawsuit as an occasion to depose the plaintiff to see if her claims were credible? So I see the point House Father makes there. I understand there would be debate about that particular point, but it does show a level of disorganization um, among Hockey Canada brass there. And it is unthinkable to me that we're just moving forward, that that uniform, that logo, that's going to be next month at the World Juniors at the Women's World Hockey Championships in uh, in Denmark in late August. Uh, I find that hard to, to stomach. I find it hard to believe, but I find a lot of this hard to believe. Our next guest, uh, Greg Gilhooley, wrote the book, I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life in reference to the convicted sexual predator, Graham James. And Greg Gilhooley joins Toronto today right now. Greg, thank you very much for making the time for us. It's a pleasure to have you on, um, and, and we appreciate you doing that for our listeners. Well, thanks for having me on this morning. When I play um, that that question from Anthony Housefather, I know I know you tweeted about it that it in some way you appreciate the fast settlement for um, the 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 alleged victim in this particular case. Does Housefather have a point in that there wasn't they they still knew very little about the details of the accusation, didn't get a chance to depose the woman, or do you say th- this is probably one of the things that you say they did better than some of the other things they did? Yeah, I think it shows the best and the worst of Hockey Canada at the same time. Hockey Mm -hmm. Canada tried to do the right thing by helping the victim, but in executing the plan, they get it wrong, right? Uh, It's wonderful. You don't, as an institution, you don't want to be beholden to lawyers and insurers. You want to be able to do the right thing, not necessarily the legal thing, and pay out the victim. But at the same time, Hockey Canada isn't being clear. They, They need... To, to follow the process and they need to dig deeper and they need to get all of the information and they don't stop investigating simply because they've done the right thing and paying off the victim. And th- I think that's the real problem here. You've got hockey guys in way over their heads dealing with complicated and sophisticated legal issues and they're just losing the forest for the trees. You got a phone call. Um, I, I, I read it a couple of days ago on, on Ken Campbell's Substack, the esteemed uh, hockey writer, and you talked to him about your situation. You got a call 11 years ago from Hockey Canada, um, and you weren't planning at that point uh, in suing Hockey Canada, uh, but they wanted to offer you an out-of-court settlement for what you went through uh, with the aforementioned hockey coach. What, what was the process? Yeah, so I had come forward on an anonymous basis and broken the story that Graham James had received a pardon. And Hockey Canada caught wind that I was the anonymous party, and they reached out to me. I was never going to sue them. I just wanted Graham to go to jail. And so Hockey Canada reached out to me, and I thought that was wonderful. And and so here I am sitting, Hockey Canada having done me a, a, a real solid in terms of reaching out to me to compensate me. 
But over time, I came to realize what they really wanted to do was just ensure that I was going to stay quiet and go away. And you still wrote a book about it. So there yeah. I, there was no um, did you sign something in which you're, you're when you're writing your book, Greg, did, was did you sign something where you're like, ah, am I compromising their payments? Am I co- like or, or do you just say, I'm just going to I'm just going to tell my story and tell my truth and, and see where it goes? Oh, it was a bit of both. The non-disclosure agreement that I was uh, required to sign didn't prevent me from disclosing things that happened with Graham because Graham was already previously convicted and there was Mm -hmm. no secret that Graham was out there abusing. The non-disclosure agreement in this most recent incident is very different, or at least it was until Hockey Canada appears to have changed it over the past week in uh, response to the public uproar. This most recent NDA shut up the victim. Uh, my my NDA was less restrictive than the, the current situation. What what do you make of what I said about that? We're on a bit of a time crunch here with the World Juniors starting in two weeks in Alberta and the Women's World Hockey Championships in Denmark in under a month about the uniform, the the the, the black, red and white, the, 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 the logo. Um, I don't think we'll ever look at it quite the same way again. And I'm. I, I don't know. Sheldon Kennedy calls for the removal of the Hockey Canada brass. Anthony Housefather, who we just played, did it yesterday. Do we need a higher body to do this? Do we need the prime minister to do this? Because th- this just seems obvious that we can't roll with that name, that logo, and that sense of uh, of that anymore for our international teams. Well, that's right. And that's hockey culture. And unfortunately, the hockey culture, at least on the, the, the men's side of thing, has always been to protect the logo on the front of the jersey. And... Uh, not necessarily uh, pursue uh, hunts for the truth in in difficult situations. If I were Hockey Canada, first of all, the leadership has to go. The the senior executives and the board has to go. And I've been calling for that for some time. Um, But if I were Hockey Canada, I would think long and hard about allowing the men's national team to participate in the upcoming world championships. I, I think sexual assault is far more important than winning national championships and i think hockey canada should be sending a a very important message here that we've got to get our house in order and we've got to rectify the serious problems that have taken place over the past number of years and uh, as a starting place we're going to take time to get that right and we're not going to rush into the next world championship we're we're going to take the focus imagine what the focus is going to be like on on the upcoming tournament You know, I, I, I just I don't see it as tenable. Now, I'm also a realist and Hockey Canada hasn't made the best decisions over the past decade. So the tournament will probably proceed with Canada in it. And I think you've put players, you've put broadcasters, you put the fans to pay tickets in an uncomfortable position. They may, It's their choice to buy those tickets. And I suppose we could make the case it's the choice for uh, TSN, the rights holders, to cover it how they, how they deem fit. I want to ask you about what happened last week. I'm real curious to get your legal perspective. The lawyers for seven of the eight accused players, again, with no, with, they've reopened the criminal case, but there were no criminal charges found by London police. The lawyers released some text messages, uh, Greg, and they released some video. Uh, the, the best way I could put it, someone said, what do you think of this? And I'm like, they realized that their players are going to look like, quote unquote, creeps by this incident but they think it's the only way they can prove consent. That's how I read it. You got a lot more uh, defined legal mind than I do. What did you think of what they did? And what's the, what's the MO? What's the win? Well, it's a couple of things. First of all, uh, defense lawyers, when they release some of the defense information, have released nothing until they've released all 
of the information. And my guess is that there are more text messages than were fully disclosed or supposedly fully disclosed uh, last week. Uh, I also, I I'm not so concerned whether or not these individuals uh, are found guilty in a court of law criminally. I, I don't think anyone doubts that they are creeps, uh, to, to use your word, right. and that something something wrong took place. And whether the bar for uh, sanctioning them within the hockey world is being a creep or, or going to jail, I, I think we're, we're kind of focusing on the wrong thing. They did wrong. That woman, when she was getting ready to go out at, at that event, she did not anticipate having sexual relations with eight guys. And you can talk about consent and craft consent and record consent, but was it full consent? Was it sober consent? Was there any pressure applied to get the consent? And by the way, even if there was consent, it's abhorrent behavior. And it's not uh, indicative of a group of men who should be representing our country with the maple leaf on their chest. And that's the problem, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And Hockey Canada for too long has let these uh, young men operate within hockey culture mm -hmm. with very little accountability. Hey, Greg, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm upset that we're out of time. I hope maybe you'll come back in the next couple of weeks as we, as we, uh, I guess, I guess get more closure, not just on these hearings, but seeing where the direction of the organization goes. Thank you so much for the time this morning. You're most welcome. Uh, Greg's book is I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. He published it in 2018, one month before this alleged assault took place. You may have seen a study and BlogTO wrote about it, but a few other places did as well. Here's the headline and the Coles Notes version. Toronto ranked one of the worst cities in North America for post-lockdown recovery. Well, at one point, we sure were one of the most lockdown cities in North America. But this study, um, and it was a joint project from U of T and uh, Cal Berkeley, looked at cell phone tower signals. Remember how we were doing that with mobility during the pandemic to see who was going where and that was a big reason that the outdoors was locked down. Well, people are going to go places. You remember the premier's famous couple buddies. They like to have a couple pops. They get in the car together and go play golf. And in retrospect, um, it's an era we'd rather not relive. That's for sure. But Toronto didn't rank very well in terms of recovering, coming in at 52nd with 46% economic recovery, way behind Halifax, way behind London, behind Quebec City. So what is it about us? Salt Lake City, Utah, by the way, came in at 155% recovery. They're booming. Um, really excited to bring on Shauna Braille. She's associate professor at the Institute of Management and Innovation at U of T Mississauga and an economic geographer and urban planner. Shauna, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time for us when we asked. Thanks. Good morning, Greg. Uh, yeah, I'm eager to get some of your observation of this. I love drilling down in data and demographics and cities. I've always, even as a little kid, been kind of fascinated by populations and whatnot. Does this study, do, when we look at the data in this study, does this help us understand exactly what defines downtown recovery? Absolutely. I mean, as you talked about, this is a study that's focused on data collected uh, in, in large part by an analytics company measuring cell phone presence. Uh, and maps out the location of cell phone activity and presence along with other location details. And in fact, the study combines this cell phone data with uh, census data collected on sort of population statistics and um, and other sort of census uh, material released both by the Canadian and US uh, census 
organizations. The really neat thing about this is that it's very difficult to do a comparison mm -hmm. of North American cities. It's hard to get the right kinds of data. Data is, as you said, a crucial, it's a crucial resource in understanding patterns and changes, uh, especially in response to COVID and recovery efforts. And there is no single best source for information. So, you know, some data we're familiar with is collected by governments and government agencies. For instance, how many people are riding on transit every day? How many new businesses opened or closed in a, in a city or a province? How many people employed in a particular industry or sector? But to understand real-time or near-time data, we need to look for other non-traditional data sources, which has included cell phone data, data collected on spending by credit card companies. There is a firm in the U.S. measuring back to the office activity through data collected by office key fobs. And in fact, their main <laughs> business is providing security, including office key fobs. So we have all kinds of sources of data and we need to, in order to paint a picture of activity, return, recovery, challenge, we need to be able to analyze and understand uh, patterns of change, and this requires data from multiple sources. Mm. Shauna Brail is our guest, Dr. Shauna Brail, economic geographer and associate professor with the Institute of Management Innovation at the U of T. I, I think two things about what you said. One, yeah, mobility, and, and that's what, what I sort of questioned in spring of 21. I thought, okay, you're getting in the car, but what's the reason you're, what you do when you get out of the car when it came to COVID, especially pre-vaccination, was a massive factor. If you're going to work in an empty environment, in an empty office building, that's different than going to a, a crowded indoor place of course it is and you made a great point about cities really hard to compare mobility in new york to mobility in los angeles in los angeles everybody drives there's not much public transit there in new york nobody drives and there's tons of transit options so it's really tough to compare those two cities absolutely and you know going back to some of the results from this study when you look at halifax's success in, in you know along along the measures used halifax for instance has a bus system but no subway mm -hmm. and in 2016 which is the most recent data we have from stats canada the estimate is that 12 percent of the of the city's population used public transit to commute to work and if you compare that to toronto uh, that number was 37%, right? And we know that people have been reluctant to return to public transit, especially to subways, right? Subways have been the slowest to recover ridership. And if people are, are concerned about, you know, taking mass, taking public transit and have the potential to work from home, then that's also going to influence the, the level of recovery, at least for the time being. With how, I mentioned it earlier, with how locked down we were, does that make the suggestion that because we were, um, you know, for better or worse, for for being cautious or being you know, non-reckless, for how slow we were to other cities to open up? Uh, to me, someone asked me about that with this data. And, Sean, I looked at it, and because the data is so fresh and it's from 2022, I'm not sure that necessarily plays a role. I think your points about where Halifax and Quebec City are ahead of us really don't have much to do with Ontario being so shut down because this is more current data than a year ago. Yes, it's very current data. Um, you know, we if it's one of the questions to ask is how long does recovery take after reopening, mm -hmm. right? And we know that it was it was faster and in many ways easier to lock down than to reopen and to recover, you know, to go back to where where we might have been before. And actually, I also want to say that a lot of people are talking not about going back to where we were before, but actually building forward together, really thinking about how we can make change that 
improves our, our cities, our quality of life, our, you know, the opportunities we provide for a diverse range of, of people in, in all of these cities? And how do we make that actually better? What toll is work from home taking on a city like Toronto? You referenced it and, and some of the big North American cities where um, we know in, even in the real estate market, obviously, uh, the G, you know downtown Toronto is always going to have its its perks and, and people want to live downtown for a specific reason. But when I think about it, I think I worry about the city surviving because people that were coming in five days a week, as you know, they would pick their dry cleaning up. They'd get a, a present for their wife or husband for an anniversary. They'd go out to dinner more. They might stick around for a concert downtown more if somebody gave them to like we're just those things mm-hmm. aren't happening quite as frequently in a major city like Toronto and work from home is a factor there. Absolutely. You know, the skeptical view says that this is just a real estate dilemma for downtown building owners. owners. And mm-hmm. as you suggest, the reality is that it's far more significant and widespread than that. There are broad implications, right? Both for small businesses, whether it's the dry cleaner or the, you know, the hair salon or the local, the, you know, the independent restaurant that you frequent. But there are also big implications for how we finance transit, how we think about generating revenues for city governments that get reinvested back in the city. What about plans for siting big park spaces and daycares and social services? The good news is that that Toronto and really all big, most cities are recovering from COVID. And as someone reminded me last week, pandemics don't last forever. The city is recovering. We, you know, if you've been out in in any city, you've seen people want to be out. They want to be out with one another. I was actually at a Coldplay concert just about a week and a half ago with 80,000 other people uh, just outside of Paris. And these, they had five concerts and they were all sold out. People want to go out, but we can't just have cities that are, you know, the focus of concerts and parades and protests even. We need to really think about how do we tether people to the city so that they continue to maintain a relationship and that when we are ready as a collective, right, and that's going to take mm-hmm. a lot of negotiation and compromise and probably a continuation of hybrid and remote work for some or for many different types of occupations. But but mm. I do believe that we will get there and we are seeing really tremendous progress. Dr. Shauna Braille, our guest economic geographer, she teaches an associate prof at uh, U of T Mississauga. Next time, I, I hope you'll come on again. We'll talk data. We'll talk Definitely. urban planning. And we'll talk more Coldplay. Now that I, I would have Great, had a I'd totally different tone <laughs> in the interview talking uh, Chris Martin and Coldplay. I saw them in their very first tour. So we can start there next time we talk. Mm. Absolutely. Awesome to have you on. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Shauna Braille. All right. Probably the big news in uh, federal politics this week. It has to be when, well, a three-time elected prime minister comes kind of out of nowhere and endorses the leading candidate, at least according to the polls, uh, to succeed not just leadership in his party, but potentially be prime minister. So let's talk about that with uh, VP at Crestview Strategies and a former uh, chief of staff to the deputy leader of of the CPC. And we he knows this man really well. He is Andrew Brander. Andrew, it's great to have you on Toronto today, as always. Thanks for the time. Greg, great to be here. That was unusual. We saw sort of vintage Stephen Harper. We hadn't seen him so prominent in a while. Um, we, we got a little nice background music. Someone described it as uh, music when you get put on hold to buy uh, tickets and I wouldn't disagree with that when we used to call for tickets instead of doing it all online. Did did the Harper endorsement, um, and it's an aggressive one for uh, Pierre Paulia, surprise yeah. you at all? 
it, it was surprising to see uh, the former prime minister. Looks like he's aged a little bit as well, <laughs> but, but looks like he's having a good time in retirement. So look, I mean, uh, when, when people are political animals, you can't really be all that surprised. Uh, when they uh, when they come around and can't help themselves but get involved, these are obviously the most exciting time, um, especially for someone who has served as a prime minister before. Because ultimately, of course, we have to remember the, the guy that's in power now, uh, who has beat the last two leaders of the Conservative Party, was the guy that beat him. So uh, for former Prime Minister Harper, I think a bit of this is personal. Mm -hmm. I think a bit of this is him saying, you know what, enough's enough. Trudeau's won two elections. If we don't clean up our act as a party, it's going to be a third one. So I think that that's sort of the the, the frustration that, that Harper's speaking to, uh, which has finally had him sort of come out of uh, the more traditional role of a, of a former party leader to kind of stay out of these things and say, hey, this is the business of the party. E each member of the party is, is one member. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually speak up and, and say something this time. It raises an interesting question. If I took you back to the 2015 Canadian federal election and uh, Stephen Harper is older than he is now, but so are you and I by seven years. Um, but we look great. But I'd ask you this. Do you look and go, maybe, just maybe, Stephen Harper wonders if he should have stepped aside prior to that? I, I always say this in politics. You often see the train coming, and um, and and whether it's ego, whether it's not wanting to let people down, not knowing who's going to step in. I think Kathleen Wynne's a perfect example of that. She probably needed to get out of the way in 2018, and I think the cost the, it cost the Ontario Liberals a lot. The, the Conservatives lost 60 seats, going 159 to 99. I mean, they got hit pretty hard. Do you think Stephen Harper at all regrets seven years later staying for the 15 election? What do you think? Ego plays a huge role in these types of things. John Horgan's a perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. Really scandal-free, has a pretty solid record. He's going out as the most popular and highest approval ratings of, of any premier uh, and he's decided to sort of hang up the skates uh, by himself. And I, I, I think that, you know, more leaders in politics should be looking at that. That's why I've always been a fan of term limits. And government doesn't, never moves as fast as you think it will on the outside. So you, so you want to keep going. And, you know, many people would say the same thing about Trudeau um, right yeah. now and, and saying, you know, maybe it's time for, for him to see the writing on the wall as well. Uh, and and perhaps the prospects for the Liberal Party would be that much greater uh, if if it was if it was someone else. Andrew Branders, our guest from Crestview Strategies, you bring up a great point. There always has to be that heir apparent. There's no one just sitting there. There isn't a young Brian Mulroney. There isn't even a Jean Chrétien who's a seasoned veteran who can pick up the pieces after after Mulroney wins those two elections. So I I, I do wonder about that, and I don't have a feel, and many don't. For whether Justin Trudeau will run again. Just to bring you back in, in terms of when, when we're reflecting on the Conservatives' leadership, you have to remember, Greg, this iteration of the Conservative Party um, was only founded in 2000, right? Mm -hmm. It was the Alliance, it was the PCs. Harper played a huge role in, in bringing that together. And since then, only he has been able um, to win with this coalition, with this current iteration of the party. And so that's actually a crisis also for the Conservatives 
so much as until such a point that another leader of this conservative party wins, it will kind of continue to be a cult of personality party, right? It will be still Harper's party. And that's why this endorsement matters so much. But, you know, they didn't win under Scheer. They didn't win under O'Toole. So the question really for the conservatives here that, that they're trying to solve in this leadership is, can anyone win this party except for, except for Stephen Harper? Or do we need another, you know, personality like that who's, who's able to bring, bring the elements of the, of the uh, conservative coalition together to, to mount a serious challenge to, to the government? And I'll tell you, you, you bring up something that, that resonates for me, uh, Andrew, is that Stephen Harper figured out how to get seats in Ontario. And you just have to. We had Pierre on the show last week and I ran him down the last three numbers, liberal seats versus conservative seats in uh, in, in 15 and 19 and 21. They're really ugly results. It's around 80 to 30. So Polly ever or whoever has to make up probably 25, 30 seats. The conservatives have to penetrate it. They've got to knock it down. Yeah, and it's incredible to see the contrast, right? Like you look, you look at the election that we just had provincially, and I, you know, I, I'm saying it in in the sense that you know now I'm going to get a bunch of people asking me <laughs> if I fundamentally believe that Doug Ford's a conservative or not, and that's a you know that's a story for another day. Doug Ford just won 83 seats in Ontario. Um, it is possible to do with the right formula, with the right leader. Um, and and speaking to the right issues, and that can be done in a way that reflects conservative values. I do think that Pierre's onto something. I think you're seeing that uh, manifest itself through the crowds he is attracting, through the issues he is speaking to, and I do think that he is tapping into some of that motivation that you're going to find will light a fire under under certain people to get out to the polls and and vote for this party in a way um, that Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole were unable to do so. And and last thing that brings us back to the original thought process is Stephen Harper's out there for uh, Pierre Polyev already prior to a leadership convention. I'm sure Aaron O'Toole looks at this and says, I could have used that guy last summer because I've noticed it this week that Harper endorsement really resonated with people. These types of uh, endorsements or support um, are very much done in coordination. If he was asked in the last campaign, I, I can't speak to that, obviously. In this case, at least with this endorsement, very closely coordinated with uh, with Pierre's campaign. Um, and, and so if they see the benefit towards having uh, Harper stumping, for uh, Pierre, I'm sure he would jump at the opportunity to to do so in the next campaign. Andrew Brander from Crestview Strategies. I love talking politics. I love talking elections with you. We've got a municipal election this fall, and this week again, I guess we sit on our hands for about three, three and a half years. We'll be we'll be out of these sort of uh, juicy competitions. But uh, I appreciate the time and the conversation. Great to chat, Greg. Andrew Brander from uh, Crestview Strategy on the show, and he makes an interesting point. I wish I'd asked him about Patrick Brown and the influence that that has. We're talking, what, three weeks ago now? Patrick Brown uh, was eliminated, disqualified from the leadership race. And uh, though he maintained that he didn't do anything wrong, the Conservative Party of Canada felt otherwise. And I don't know where it goes for Jean Charest. I just, we're not going to have much drama to this. Um, this is Pierre's party, and this is Pierre's race to win. And when you look back at some of the numbers, they're really fascinating. Look, 
The conservatives are struggling right now. I think we can make the case with exactly what the liberals were struggling with during the aforementioned Stephen Harper's best years. They really are. Is just finding that person that they feel could light a fire. And there's been nothing like Pierre Polyev in Canadian politics that I can recall. He's found a way to uh, adapt to changing times. He's found a way to adapt to social media. Uh, Does he have moments where I'm sure that if I were advising, I'd be like, stop it with the cryptocurrency thing. Stop it with going too far and talking about other vaccinations besides COVID. You can have a logical conversation about COVID vaccines, their effectiveness in limiting infection spread. Um, You know, I do my work on this. You know, I don't come to you without data. You know, I'm not laissez-faire. You know, also, I'm not going to peddle fear on the air. I'm going to try and meet you in the middle with numbers and being practical. You know that. But at the same time, Pierre's got to stop that when it comes to talking about other vaccines. Imagine a world where prior to 2020, a federal candidate started suggesting, I don't know if we should let kids into school without the MMR vaccine. Maybe we just should. What about chickenpox? What about varicella? What about polio? Let's just make all these optional now. You wouldn't listen for five seconds. So there's two conversations to have about vaccination, where we're going with what we have right now with the COVID vaccine and wondering if people should be getting fifth, sixth, seven shots someday. We've obviously had this conversation and I've had my own pushback and I'm sorry, I'm proud of it to suggest mandating them for teenagers and kids is not the way to go now. What might have been okay last fall, and I'm not even sure it was. Uh, Because there's coercion involved. Well, you don't have to get it. Yeah, I know. But then then no high school, no sports, can't go to movies, can't go to restaurants. That's coercion, whether we think it's a good thing or not. And I was for it to get numbers up. But specifically before Omicron, when obviously it was far safer to prevent spread. I can't make I can't go into people's houses and, and, and tell them what's best for them health wise. I can't do that. And I sure can now in a post-Omicron era. So Pierre's got to cut out that some of that nonsense. But Andrew makes a good point. Stephen Harper just didn't show. Just didn't show for uh, for Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Shear, And he's uh, he's representing now. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show to wrap up your week before a long weekend. And you can hear that on the Radio Player Canada app at 640toronto.com or on your AM dial at 640. Thanks for listening.